Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. When people are in pain, they start to get defensive. When we get defensive, we are really focused on protecting ourselves. It's rarely physical safety. It's usually a threat to our identity. But when this happens, we get self-absorbed and we lose the sense of otherness. Hi, my name is Mark Groves and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts where I get to explore alongside you every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Welcome back to the podcast, Nick Solacek. Thank you. Good to be here. Dude, you're the couple's whisperer. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's a title you have. Last time you came on, we talked about a lot of couple stuff and people love what you were putting down. So I'm like, I got to get you back on here because couples are still apparently having problems. Yeah, it's a thing. It's, uh, it's a it's, thing. It's good to be back. I think that I will be working for a long time. And, you know, I love what I do. In terms of Whisperer, my partner and I do watch Disney Plus, Caesar Milan. We're one Little of the Caesar. dog training videos. So I don't mind that title. Well, you know, it's it, being able to walk people through or make sense of how individual stuff shows up in couple stuff. I find the one thing that's interesting when people first start exploring relational dynamics, maybe as the individual coming forward for the couple or like with the challenges they're having. Yeah. Usually because the other person just may not be open to it. I don't know what your experience is, but I find that often someone goes seeking the information to try to fix the thing in the relationship so that maybe the other person won't have to, too. Yeah, well, generally there's one partner who takes more of an offensive approach to challenges in their life. 
So when that comes to relationships, they take more of an offensive approach to try and work things out, ask for support, try to get some guidance or answers to their questions. They can just take direction. They can be more outer directed in the world. And that person, interestingly, pairs up with, marries, wants to start a family with someone that's more inner directed, with someone who doesn't take so much guidance from the outside world and tends to think about it in their own mind and come to a decision sometimes very privately, like it's almost appears hidden from their partner. And that creates all kinds of issues. There's a few layers I want to explore in this. The first one is that relationally, it tends to be the woman who is more I was going to say offensive, but like not offensive in the like, <laughs> fuck you. But in uh, they're more on the offense, as you're saying. They're more proactive generally in exploring relational things. Yeah, the tendency and the trend is that 75% of the time, it's the woman bringing their male partner into the room. You know, if you yeah. exaggerate that with a drag and the guy in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's lots of partners that come in willingly together and they're emotionally intelligent and more on the same page. A lot of the couples that are in therapy or in couples work are really emotionally intelligent and they're smart. They realize that there's something going on they can't work out. They realize they have an issue or a challenge. So they go to get support. And typically they're not as deep inside of their resistance, which is one of the things that we all deal with. We've got resistance to change, resistance to growth. We've got our walls and our masks, the parts of ourselves we feel like we need to protect and defend because we felt like we had to do that as a kid. So it's complicated. Yeah, I think in the Gottman's work, they talk about how relational masters are open to the influence of their partner. If I look back to partnerships before I was 30, I didn't see that my partner bringing something forward to me or feedback was actually conducive for me. Like, oh, that's great. Like, great you feel that way. Insert gaslighting or whatever I did. You know, I remember a partner saying to me, why when I bring something to you, do I end up feeling like it's my fault? And I was like, uh, I don't know. Well, that's your own stuff. You know, like, yeah, such. Yeah. it's so bad. But I didn't know what I was doing. I had no clue that I was so afraid of not feeling like I was enough that I was willing to have someone else feel like they were crazy. And I think most of it's survival strategies. We don't know we're doing this till we know we're doing this. And then, uh. and so when you talk about this desire to, to bring in a third party, Kai and I will often, if we're experiencing something that is just not like, we're just not finding the resolution and there's something we're not getting to the deeper thing and, or we need someone objective because my mind is like, I need someone else to see this because she's not seeing it the way I see it. And my righteous side is like, but I'm seeing her perspective. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, that could be true though too, right? But this is just Can a it? common, common dynamic. Validate so, me, validate me. First of all, you are, you are the kind of person, you, you are the kind of person that- Kai's wrong is what you're saying? That's okay, exactly that's what cool. So you're, you're the kind of person that values growth. You're the kind of person that has an orientation towards truth, towards wisdom. You know, all these conversations that you're having on the podcast, all the courses that you've made, what you've dedicated your life to. So that's something that's of interest to you. Many of the people that approach therapy, counseling, coaching don't aren't totally there, aren't steeped in personal development necessarily, or have like a really deep orientation on growth, personal transformation, development, taking responsibility for their reality, putting certain dynamics to bed, like playing the victim or playing the hero or the rescuer in their relationship. 
So for you, when you go into that room and you say, you know, I need someone else to help kind of show my perspective and validate that I'm right and let my partner know that they need to change <laughs> yeah, and they're yeah. the ones to blame for the issue. I mean, that exists inside of every single relational dynamic. Uh, it's just part of relationship. Okay, let me qualify that the shadow, I like to call the shadow part of me Gollum because he's like, well, my precious, like we'll figure that we'll get it. It has the feeling like someone else will come in and objectively see my clarity, you know, right. but I, I, the underlying intention of bringing a third party in is for both of us to find, to be witnessed, heard, and then productively move forward through the guidance and direction of someone else. So I joke about it, but really ultimately I'm doing what you're saying, which is to pursue knowing that we need someone else who's skilled at both helping bring into language what we're both coming to that just seems to be like we're missing each other. Yeah. Well, for me, it's heartbreaking to get this question constantly from people online, which is how do I get my partner to do the work? How do I right. get my partner to right. come to therapy? How do I get my partner to work on things with me, read a book with me, take a course with me, you know, listen to a podcast, whatever it is. Podcast. Yeah. yeah. And this podcast, there's so much pain inside of our relationships. Suffering is a part of life, but I think a lot of that is, is inside of our relationships, whether it's romantic or it's with family, friends, uh, coworkers, colleagues. We get into all kinds of tricky spots. With romance in particular, I find it really interesting that we're propagandized by culture. So for example, mm, as a 14, 15, 16-year-old boy, as you're developing relationships outside of your family, you're having more of an emphasis on friendships and people outside of that core unit and you start moving into developing intimate relationships, you start maturing sexually and emotionally. During this time, the information that you're getting from culture, because now you're aware of it and you're looking for it, is that women dress a certain way, like a pop star. They look a certain way. And we project, because we all do this inside of a normal relationship, we project that the right partner or the person that looks good enough or has the right body or is successful enough, is gonna meet all of our needs. They're gonna satisfy our longings and they are gonna be everything to us. They are gonna be so the good. Jerry Maguire, you yeah. complete me sort of experience. And we're sold this as we go deeper into the narratives in pop songs and movies and TV shows that there's going to be someone there, maybe the one or our soulmate, to really fulfill and satisfy our existential questions or longings and that once we meet them everything's going to work it's out for us makes sense they're going to get us yeah i heard someone i know quite well once say to me that when i finally meet my person they'll just understand me and i was like well fuck that's a lot of pressure to put on somebody who's like first off this person who said this to me is quite complex so whoever just understands them they deserve an award but you know i i, I joke about it but that type of expectation that there isn't something to be discovered that the one or your person will just get you and i i think the real feeling we're looking for is to be accepted mm -hmm. you know but that they're going to understand the complex layers of all the social conditioning and childhood stuff we've had happen, that they're just going to get it. it. It's just not a, to me, that's not a realistic 
expectation of partnership. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? That's totally fair. I, I think that most people should look for a partner who's willing to some degree to understand, you know, yeah. willing to try to make an effort. But we get caught in some really complex dynamics. One of the core teachings, one of the core findings in Imago philosophy is a concept that Harville coined called emotional symbiosis. And that's a really complicated phrase for essentially perceiving and believing that my experience is your experience. You should want what I want. You should see things the way that I see it. (laughs) And we get into this and we do it in different ways too. You know what? If I'm happy, you're happy. Oh yeah. If you want it, I want it. If you're good, I'm good. But that's not true connection. Right. That's emotional symbiosis. True connection is I'm connected to who I am and your difference. And I maintain who I am and maintain connection in that. In our differences? Yeah. So one of the key things that happens in a relationship is we object to difference and we do it really quickly because difference causes us anxiety. So an example would be like, if you believe that the dishes should be done right after dinner, but I believe in lounging and putting my feet up and digesting my food. And you know what? I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. I'll do it in the morning. This is one thing that comes up between me and my partner. She wants to make- People are listening right now being like, fucking hell, that's us. Yeah. Yeah. For everyone listening, your conflicts in the kitchen are are not rare. This is everyone I talk to, every couple (laughs) has got something. It's about when to do the dishes. It's about how the garbage disposal should work, who takes out the garbage, who does more chores, who should cook. It happens also because I think as children, the, the kitchen is a gathering place for the family. And so when the family gathers together, there's an opportunity for attunement or misattunement. There's an opportunity for people to have a loving interaction or a stressful interaction, something that could be cold, something that could be warm. And we have a tendency to replay childhood dynamics in our adult relationships. So I have noticed, and my partner has noticed, and the couples that I work with have noticed that they have a tendency to do this, that they, when they look and they see there's a similar resonance or an exact duplication, replication of something that went on for them when they were a kid. Like their frustrations. Like the frustrations they had as a kid, the misattunements they had with their parent. You know, maybe mom, when she was in the kitchen, was always really stressed and busy and cold and rigid and didn't want anyone in there. Everyone out, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen. And then as an adult, you can replay that by perceiving that your partner is your mom or becoming your mother and becoming really rigid in the kitchen. And then having these little moments where you run into your partner's trigger or sensitivity to the way that you're being, it's very subtle the way that these things can happen because it's automatic, it's on autopilot, it's unconscious. When we think that our partner should see it the way that we see it, we actually just believe how I feel is how you feel. Let's do it my way, this is the right way. And that happens for a number of reasons which is really this experience of pain that we we come into, and we've all got pain in our relationships. Yeah. If you're the one that wants your partner to go to therapy with you, there's some pain, hurt, stress, something you're longing for, some need that's not getting met, which is why you, you wanna discuss it, which is why you wanna try and work it out with your partner. And what's often not seen is that the other partner there who's resistant to getting help, resistant to putting their hand up to ask questions or let someone else into their world, also has pain and hurt. And it might be fear. It might be concerns that they have about certain outcomes. It might be that they feel annoyed, actually, that their partner's wanting more from them, wanting them to grow, wanting them to change. Mm -hmm. Why can you not just be happy? Yeah. Yeah. So There's a lot of layers to undo. There's a lot. But the point is, is when people are in pain, they start to get defensive. 
And when we get defensive, we are really focused on protecting ourselves and making sure that we're not being threatened. It's rarely physical safety. It's usually a threat to our, our identity. It's usually yeah. a threat to our sense of power or our ability to explore the world, our freedom in some way. And that's what we want to protect. And those are biological imperatives. It makes sense that we get worked up, we get stressed about these things. But when this happens, we get self-absorbed and that's where we get emotionally symbiotic and we lose the sense of otherness. So if I'm in pain in my relationship, uh, yeah, I get like defensive. You lose the individuation that occurs when you believe in that symbiosis is really- That's right. There's no difference. That's right. There's no yeah. difference. There's no differentiation. You are me, I am you. Yeah. But it happens because I'm so focused on myself. I'm so absorbed in my situation and how I feel and what, what my sensations and thoughts and processes are that I can't sense you. So, I, so it's a loss of empathy that occurs. This is at the core of all of the issues that couples experience is I can't feel what you're feeling. I can't sense what you're feeling because I don't want to, I'm not thinking about it, but also I'm just, all my energy is being put on me and I'm wanting to defend and protect myself through a truly defensive, minimizing type of strategy or maybe through something more offensive, which could be getting loud or constantly investigating or getting needy and clingy or trying to manipulate the situation. Aggressive, Aggressive yeah. sure. Manipulation, yeah. that makes sense. If you haven't heard me talk about Cozy Earth Sheets before, let me tell you, I'm about to introduce you to the greatest sheets you will ever have touch your body. Anytime someone comes to our house and stays in our guest room, they always want to know what is the bed situation. What are the sheets that we have? Their sheets, their comforters, their duvets, everything is magic. Their bedding is naturally breathable. It's temperature regulating. It's so damn soft. It's ethically sourced viscose from bamboo. It's incredible. And the brand was featured on Oprah's favorite thing, but before that, it was featured on Mark's favorite things. Like, I discovered this brand years ago before I ever even chatted with them about being a sponsor for the podcast. And because I love their product so much, I asked for an exclusive offer for you and you get 40% off site-wide. And now they have pajamas. They have like loungewear. So not only do you get to wrap yourself in the experience of the sheets as clothing, but you then get to get into the bed in that. So you're like double wrapped. And so all you got to do to save 40% off site-wide is use the code GROVES at checkout. So just my last name, G-R-O-V-E-S. So go to CozyEarth.com. C-O-Z-Y-E-A-R-T-H dot com and use the code Groves and you get 40% off all their products. Okay, let's uncover these layers then. The first one, just about the framework of the one partner who is more seeking, right? The one who is, let's go to therapy, let's do this. I'm the one who's noticing our disconnection or whatever it is. Often that person is framed as the good person. Socially, we frame them as the good person. The way they tell the story is that they brought this forward and their partner failed to receive their invitation, which can be true. But the person who's avoidant or fearful of therapy or reading the book or the podcast or whatever it is, is framed as the bad person or like not evolved, not open, not. And I think what you're inviting me, which is why I want to explore deeper both perspectives, is that we have to be compassionate for both sides. And yeah. if we're not compassionate for the fear or for whatever's coming up for the other person, then they're not gonna be open to coming, yeah. right? Yeah. I tell this story sometimes on the pod, so if you've heard it before, it's a good story. When I was doing a book club with uh, the Gottmans and Julie, I had said, uh, their book is called Eight Dates, it's a great book. 
And it's like eight essential conversations all couples should have. And I said, uh, is it a red flag if, like, if the person doesn't, if the partner doesn't want to read the book, like, are you just like, peace, <laughs> like, bye? And she was like, oh, my gosh, no, Mark. Like, she sounded much better than that. But she was like, no, like, there could be so many things coming up for them mm -hmm. about what the book represents or what it's going to discover or and I was like, oh, yeah, like it, I need to be more compassionate, probably because I've been more of the one on the offense seeking that uh, unconsciously I wanted to be punitive to the ones not accepting the invitation. Mm, Makes sense? Yeah. So now I'm very compassionate about the avoidance side because of, I think, the majority of, in let's say, heterosexual couples, the person who's avoidant is usually male. And so it's how can we be compassionate to the space of whoever is the one who's being invited and not necessarily accepting the invite as to what is getting in the way. Yeah. Because it's almost always something that they're afraid of discovering, seeing, feeling, being. And so in the first one, the person who is the seeker, I find that that request to go to therapy is a really, it's a vulnerable request. The etymology of the word vulnerability means to be open, to be wounded. And I think about that is such a vulnerable request to say like, hey, will you? And then to be faced with no is, ugh. But what do you think is at the core? Because these people find each other, right? Naturally, yes. like you said, you know, I'm, I, I was with someone, I am with someone who formerly was more avoidant, which is exactly the wound, you know? It's like, God damn, you know, it's like... Uh, God gives you, or whatever the term you want to use, a partner who's open and available, and then la God just laughs when you have to face these <laughs> parts of yourself that you. Well, have, yeah, there's certainly a cosmic right? joke in the paradox of right. the, you know, of just relationship. The maximizer is paired with the minimizer, the avoidant with the anxious person. Yeah. The person who wants more freedom is paired with the person who wants more commit commitment and stability. This is part of the whole dance, and the paradoxes continue. There are many, many, many of them. And we need to better understand these because these paradoxes at the ends of these spectrums of, for example, you know, I was here a year ago, talked about maximizing and minimizing. Maximizer is the person who draws attention towards issues. They take offensive strategies to deal with things. They might want to get advice or guidance from other people. The minimizer, they're more withheld, withdrawn. Their thoughts, feelings, and emotions might not be, you know, worn on their sleeve. They're interdirected. They can be sensitive and defensive. So these two people, those ways of being, those communication styles are developed from childhood trauma. They're developed from stress as a kid, less than ideal parenting, deficient parenting. You might not identify with having trauma, right? But the truth is, is there, there's often some patterns there. There actually are always, I'll just say it definitively, <laughs> yeah, yeah. patterns there to de develop your communication style. So couples think that they're having communication issues. They think that their communication styles are clashing, but actually it's their childhood trauma that's clashing. It's their unresolved stuff from the past that's clashing. And the Imago philosophy points them in a new direction, which is to say, these arguments, these stresses, these tensions, these things that cause you an anxiety in your relationship are opportunities for healing and growth. There are opportunities to resolve everything that's coming up here. And there are many different cliches and, and ways of phrasing that, like what's coming up is coming up to be healed. It's not coming up to recreate a nightmare scenario for you. And I personally have found that to be true. So, so 
You know, in the example you're talking about with your partner, these dynamics where she might see it a different way than you and you feel like, "Ah, I'm definitely right about this. (laughs) Uh, You know, inside of that moment is was what I would refer to as like a power struggle dynamic. And it's so common. And on, on either side of that are these two positions, these ways of being. And often in the middle is actually a really beautiful new opportunity yeah. or a new truth. And instead of being in our fixed positions, we consider a new way of being, something we hadn't thought of before. And one example from my life is my partner as a child, she wanted a golden retriever. She has always loved that breed. She wants one. And in our discussions about having a dog, we both would like an animal that's come up. And I said, well, you know, I don't really resonate with that breed. I want a pit bull. I want a, a Staffordshire bull terrier. You know, this, this, this thing will feed my ego a little bit, right? Cause it's like our avatar. <laughs> yeah. a, you know, I'm such a sensitive guy. Maybe I'd like to look nice and tough. Right. And, uh, you know, and in our conversations, it created some anxiety because she thought, well, what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to work this out? I, I really want this. We can't agree on any other breeds. And it was an issue for her. And my initial response was a little dismissive. It was like, oh, well, you know, oh, we'll figure it out in the future. There's She's some, like, wait, yeah, yeah, we will figure this out now. Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. So she wants, she has the urge and she needs she resolution. So the point is, is we had a little opposition. We had a difference. We both felt anxiety a little bit about the difference. I resorted in that moment initially to a little bit of a dismissive strategy. She took a more uh, aggressive strategy to say, we need to talk about this right now. And we were able to clear that moment. And what we discovered actually, that there was a new possibility. We started researching other breeds, looking at other options, watching some of the dog shows I alluded to earlier when we started this conversation. And we thought of things and found options that we hadn't considered before, that we didn't know existed. And this is important for all couples to get as an opportunity for the subjects that they disagree on. Instead of getting fixated on what's not working, stuck on the unresolved issues or the things that are unclear, what kind of vision can we build? What else is possible? How can we co-create something new? How can we turn towards our challenges together? And I would argue that most couples don't have that down. That is not a core competency that they've got. And it's a relationally, it's a skill that's important for relational competence. We, we really need to Essential. get that down if we're going to be in, in a successful, thriving relationship. Well, in that case of the golden retriever, which I'm guessing we all have a golden retriever moment, like yeah. that thing that didn't get witnessed, acknowledged, it could be any, it could be so many things. Is the need in that to first have the pain of her childhood acknowledged and and fully witnessed in what is seeking to be resolved, right? To like have that witnessed and then her then have a voice in what is the solution as opposed to just you're not getting a golden retriever and listen, we're your parents, we decide what goes on in your life. Yeah. Yeah, was that part of the resolution? That was definitely part of the resolution in terms of us noticing where we were coming from. So one of the things I'm trying to always pay attention to is my tendency to maximize or minimize, to notice my tendency to exaggerate an issue, expand my feeling, or my tendency to contract, minimize, keep things hidden within myself. Because those, again, are coming from issues from childhood. Those are not mature, grounded, empowered ways of being. They, they come from hurtful and fearful places. So in that moment with her, you know, we're both noticing that. I'm noticing my minimizing, she's noticing our maximizing. And when we do that, 
when we acknowledge, take responsibility for the way that we're being, we increase our level of awareness and we actually, the energy dissipates a little bit and we realize, okay, hey, we got cut up in our stuff. Let's take a break even. Let's come back to this in 30 minutes. Let's talk about it tomorrow. And that's something that we do all the time. We notice that, wow, we really got tripped up in there in that moment. Let's put it aside. This is important to talk about. We can come back to it the next day. Things don't always resolve you know, immediately because we get this charge in the body that starts to linger for you know, sometimes hours or days, uh, depending on how it's dealt with. Yeah, and that ability to sit with disagreement and know that it is not coupled with disconnection. I think that's one thing that I've had to learn just exploring my childhood and exploring how my parents handle if I disagree with them about something formally, that there was like this feeling that love was on the line, Mm -hmm. you know, which I'm like, wait, was this modeled in my childhood? Like, where did I pick up this idea that if we're disagreeing, it's not safe or like, it's not okay. I didn't experience like getting punished for not agreeing that I can think of, but there is some sort of template where I would get anxious if someone didn't agree with me or didn't see my side or brought feedback to me that they couldn't like that. My worth couldn't stand alone. You know what I mean? Be separated from the experience of discovery of what's friction between us, which doesn't mean I'm someone who is the cause of friction, although that can be true, but that like myself, my like wholeness is not dependent on the feedback that's being brought forward. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, one of the biological imperatives we got is for it to be okay to be us, for it to okay, for it to be okay to see things the way that we see it, feel the way that we feel. I find myself getting defensive sometimes about that need. Yeah. And so that's really all about identity. So I'm on the opposite side of you. Uh, I have my adaptation. So because we all care about it, because it's a biological imperative, we need it. It has to be okay to be us. So we. We adapt in different ways in order to protect that. So the way that I adapted is to isolate, detach, withdraw. I don't care what you think. Oh yeah, we, I would trigger you and you would trigger me. It's right. perfect. Yeah, and and then your strategy might be more to become more visible. Yeah, hey, I would over-pursue. To- I'd, I'd start fucking just belaboring the fucking point, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You would collapse more and more as I belabored. Well, it could be a collapse, absolutely. It could be a shutdown, Yeah, but it also could be a, more of a rigidity, more of a stubbornness, oh, more of an entrenching, you know, my, my digging my heels in, so to speak. And these dynamics occur for couples as well because resistance meets resistance. So if I say to my partner, yeah, I don't want to go to therapy. Um, you know, if we have to go to therapy, it means something's wrong with the relationship. And oh, if something's wrong with the relationship, yeah. we should just end it anyway. Yeah. Like, why do we need to go to therapy? We just got married or we just started dating or, and the other person was like, I thought we'd be proactive. But there is a cultural narrative that there must be something wrong with your relationship to go to therapy or there must be, I think that's changing, right? Mm-hmm. Like with yeah. the ideas of working on the mental health stigmas, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but like the really, the best people at sports have coaches, the best, you know, high performers have coaches. Why is it that we separate? I, I think it's such an interesting thing that we've been socialized and educated through a lack of education to believe that we should just be good at relationships and that just being together is the ultimate goal. 
you don't have to be happy. Just stay together and you'll get the celebration of your community. You'll get the celebration often of your family. You could stay together with an abusive alcoholic. And that is better than the possible or perceptional pain that you will experience by leaving and then being judged by your community. That has always been a fucked up framework for me to see. Yeah. Even though rationally I know that that person even in the relationship knows they're not happy and they don't want to stay in it under those circumstances. They need sobriety or they need the behaviors to change. But they're often faced with the social, the perspective that the social consequence of leaving and being empowered is actually going to cause them to lose social status and social approval, which even that idea of the need to be me, the need to be witnessed and seen and validated, it dies within the container of that relationship because they no longer actually get to be themselves. If it makes sense. Yeah. I just, as you're talking, what I'm really getting in touch with is how powerful fear is. And our planet is dominated by fear. It, it it's really it's, it's a marketed. hard it's, it's marketed. Sure. We're, we're manipulated and influenced in certain ways. We're, um, told certain things by, for example, government bodies or other regulatory agencies that, you know, tell us, oh boy, we have to do this or have to do that. But inside of our relationships, it's, it's really the same. We're, we're, we are still dominated by fear to a large degree. It's just like that we're we, avoiding what we're afraid of. Yeah. It's just, we, we fear different things. So the people that stay in a relationship for 30, 40, 50 years, and maybe they're functional alcoholics, they've never worked on the relationship. It's really become toxic and they're almost unbearable to be around. These two people are very afraid of certain things. They might just be different. And those fears are so strong and so powerful that it motivates them to stay in the relationship, right? Because what will, it, yeah. what will it mean about me if I leave this? And if I leave this or I break out of this dynamic, I'm going to have to face a part of myself. I'm going to have to face the part of myself that has stayed for decades and put oh. up with this. I'm going to have to face the part of myself that's uncertain and has no idea what life looks like outside of this dynamic in this relationship. Or if I'm going to work on it, I'm going to have to face the unknown and the uncertainty for that. I'm going to have to face the reality that I've contributed to this dynamic. I'm responsible for part of the situation. You know, I co-create the thing that I hate. Right. I am, I am contributing right. to the thing that I... am colluding. Yes. I'm yeah. colluding in this. Contribute to the thing that I say that I want nothing to do with. And yeah. it's just outside of our awareness. It's an unconscious pattern. We don't see the ways that we co-create these difficult situations in our life. It's wild to, to think about because on a conscious level, no one would want that, but on an unconscious level, the familiarity of it. You know, when you were talking about this idea that we bring into our lives, these experiences to be able to heal, right? We choose partners, we choose circumstances, almost always unconsciously, in order to move through and find expansion, productivity, generative energy, in order to, I would say, ultimately move towards this ability to be in a state of unconditional love, which is not a state of unconditional tolerance, right? That we can both come fully alive in this relationship, that we can both become actualized in whatever way that means in this relationship. And if the relationship is not in service of that, then the relationship is then imprisoning us to smaller versions of ourselves. And you think of like, if you look up your maternal and paternal lines and you see similar patterns of being in relationship with alcoholics or, again, being with someone who's uh, a maximizer or a minimizer or the person who doesn't want to do the work or the person who's constantly chasing the work, you're feeling nagged all the time. There is an opportunity to, I think that maybe the appropriate question, 
uh, is like, what would an adult do in these moments? Like, what would someone who is looking to be moved towards love, move towards truth, move towards wholeness, what would they do? And I think that often means moving into that very vulnerable space of saying, I am responsible for co-creating something that has actually been destructive to me. I think of the person who's not accepting the invitation to therapy, which I never got that direct request when I was younger in my 20s in relationship, but in my like mid to late 20s, I, I, I wouldn't have known how to say yes to that. Like I never got asked that probably because they didn't think I'd say yes to it. Yeah. But when I finally had to face the ways I'd been out of integrity in relationship, I had to grieve who I'd been. And so for the person to accept what you were saying about, you have to face like how you've contributed to this. You have to face the 20 years that you've stayed in something. And that is so much grief, if not rage, you know, to, to be like, wow, I've tolerated this or I've tolerated this for myself. What's interesting that's framed in society is that the anxiously attached or the maximizer tends to self-identify as being the one moving towards love or like being the one who's proactive. And while I think there is some truth to that because their wound is rejection and abandonment, but it's managed in a way where they enmesh or don't allow space. You know, I remember realizing with Kai that I remember asking myself, like, how do I get her to move towards me? And I remember immediately I had this thought, like, she can't move towards me. I take all the space. Hmm. Like I chase her and then she can't, there's no way for her to even, there's no space for the mystery. There's no space for, you can't trust me yeah. because I won't, if I could stand in my own sovereignty and say, I choose this. And if you don't, okay. When I finally did that, that's when there was like a level of trust because no longer was the energy of my pursuit, the need to be chosen. It was now like the need to create. But you're also in that moment taking responsibility as well. When we do that, when we say, wow, my bad, mea culpa, I really see my part in this story, my part in this puzzle and how I've contributed to this dynamic. It takes a little bit of the pressure off of our partner mm -hmm. because the tendency and normally what goes on is that we do blame, shame, finger point, put down, disrespect our partner. We use negativity to try to get them to change because we object to their difference. And in this case, the difference could be they don't value growth, they don't value working on yeah, things. whatever it is. They don't wanna talk about it. And when we object to difference, it makes us feel anxious. And when we feel anxious, we wanna do something to alleviate that, to, to get rid of our anxiety. And part of the thing that we can do is say, you shouldn't be that way. Don't be the way that you are, so I don't have to feel this way. Hmm. But we also, need to understand that part of having a healthy brain is to be able to tolerate ambiguity, to be able to hold space for multiple realities at the same time, and to be more curious about our partner's view of the world, even if it's a view that we don't understand, we don't agree with, we think is fundamentally wrong. And in this case, because of what you're saying, we pedestalize doing the work and we say, that's the right path, that's the thing everyone should do, you ought to go to therapy today, in saying those kinds of things, we can shame the other side of that story. We can, we can Which shame. Which just re-triggers them in yeah. the ways they're familiar with. People already have shame about their experience. They already have shame that they struggle at all. They already feel shame that things aren't working out. You know, the, the key phrases and, and, you know, classic statements are like, well, you know what? Our relationship would, would work 
if we were meant to be together. We wouldn't have these problems if our relationship <laughs> yeah. was meant to be. And uh, if you were the one for wand? me, yeah, yeah, if you were the one for me, we wouldn't fight. All of that is really just part of the collective struggle. There is a magic wand, I think, and uh, when you wave that, if you really can co-create something great with your partner, you can wave that prover proverbial magic wand, which says, what do we wanna create instead? If we don't like this, what do we want? Why are we in relationship? You know, why are we together? What's this about? Where are we headed? And there's something here that I've been holding in my mind that I haven't said in this conversation yet, which is, first of all, that I have been the person in my relationship sometimes that doesn't want to go book a session, sometimes that doesn't want to go to therapy because I ought to know better. I have clinical training. Uh, I know what they're going to say. <laughs> And what I want everyone to know that's listening to this, even with my clinical training, even the fact that I work with couples from around the world, I still go to therapy. I go to therapy with Same. my partner regularly. I go by myself. It benefits me. I'm not telling anybody that they have to or ought to or need to do that. I'm just saying that I've got training, this is my profession, and I go get support. And when I tell that to people, they're often jaw dropped because they think that maybe I've got it all figured out, that I'm perfect. And I'm not a perfect human being, nobody is. But I'm making an effort to be better and I'm making an effort to be more curious, more open, bring more warmth to my relationship and to continue to try to co-create this thing with my partner so that we enjoy our relationship together. And that's something that we both value, so it works, it's in alignment, it's part of our vision. Every relationship master or everyone that I've met that's amazing at relationships has support. They have community. They have a teacher. They have an elder. There's somebody that they sit with that supports them. The reason for that is that we all struggle and suffer with different aspects of being close to another person. Intimacy is a trauma trigger. It brings up our stuff. It's going to activate anything that's unresolved. And we've all got stuff that's unresolved. You know, we've all got things from our family system that weren't worked on, aren't complete. Our parents never repaired or apologized certain things. There's things that happened to us when we, were when we were young that we weren't able to process, but that information is still stored in our body. All of that stuff rears its head. So it makes sense that we need support. It makes sense that we struggle. Part of the struggle is normal and everyone experiences that. Part of it's actually necessary in order for us to grow, in order for us to level up, in order for us to reclaim the parts of ourselves that were underdeveloped, undernurtured, weren't seen, weren't heard, weren't validated. And reclaiming that is not always really positive, fluffy, lovely work. Some of that is <laughs> deeply painful, you know? Yeah, it I, is. I've grown a lot in the last four years with my partner. And one of the reasons is, is that I've been willing to face into the fire of some of those conversations. And a lot of that's been uncomfortable. I've seen things about myself that I'm not proud of. I've seen things about myself that I was shocked. Same. Holy cow, I can't believe that I thought that, or I did that, or I just went into this defensive adaptation. That doesn't always feel great, but there's something really beautiful happening as well at the same time, which is that I'm becoming more aware and I'm able to put certain patterns to bed because many times I thought I needed to end my relationship. My partners felt the same. We've both thought about breaking up and if anyone's been together for a few years, I'm sure they've come to a moment or had a private thought, right? Yeah. My partner's too much this or not enough that. Maybe is this I should, a good fit? Is yeah, that, maybe yeah. I should find someone else that's gonna love me the we way that We should normalize I, that thought because it happens, you know? And I think a lot of people feel shame because they even have that thought. 
that they think, oh man, I should get out of this situation. Yeah, like you know? maybe this isn't the right fit. Like how many people have thought that about people there in, I, I mean, Kai and I broke up, you yeah. know, and which was in service of our connection, you know, in service of us ending really old patterns, both mm -hmm. individually and the way that we relate, you know, and we got to see the evidence of self-choice that could happen in the container of relationship mm -hmm. where no love was lost, if anything, it was deepened. Yeah. To have that as evidence that you can end a relationship and love be deepened is, in a way, it makes you confident to love deeper because you know that if at some point our relationship is not in service of either of our expansion, there will always be love. Yes. And that is just such a weird thing because it's not like that means we're going to leave. If anything, that makes us want to stay more. It's a strange, Yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. There's a, an experience of liberation because that means the choice to stay is a choice, not because of a have to or should or- Yes. Right? Yeah. It's interesting from the perspective then of, let's say, let's come back to these people who one person wants to do something and the other person is resistant. What ultimately then is the way through that specific pattern, which I think would probably speak to any of the patterns of like wanting and the other being resistant, right? Like that could show up in- wanting different intimacy, wanting different anything. There's a couple ways to answer this question. And one of the things that everybody wants is a strategy. So it's like, just tell me what to do, Nick. Just yeah. tell me how to do solve the problem. you have five ways to do seven things to get nine results? <laughs> yes, that's That'd a new program I'm yeah. gonna launch. <laughs> uh, you know, so I'll just say that there are a couple of things that I do after in-depth conversations and, and really getting to heart of some of these matters. There are things that I will recommend to people. And one of them, is honestly sometimes just to ask for an early birthday gift, to ask for an early Christmas gift, an early Thanksgiving gift. Of this request. Which is maybe yeah. to read a book, maybe to go to a session. How important it is to them. Yeah, to oh. try it out, to share your intention positively with your partner and let them know that you are not trying to you know, ambush them or put them down or anything like that, but there's something you're yearning for, there's something that you're longing for, and to take responsibility for part of your contribution to the lack thereof. And that mm, opening could be, disarm, yeah. yeah, that opening could be great just for a private conversation. It could be an opening for a session. And there are other strategies like this, but really what people need to get, what the person who wants to go to therapy, wants to do the work, really needs to understand is that because their partner's resistant, they're saying no, absolutely not, or they're just unsure, doesn't mean that they would never go. It means that they've got a position, they've got an opinion and they've got fears. They have certain motivations to maintain who they are because part of that whole thing is about protecting oneself, ability to be themselves, be safe in the world, be okay. And a lot of guys, look, I mean, for me, I was told and sold that I need to be confident, I need to be rich, I need to be good looking, I need to have it all figured out. Yeah. You know, macho man. No if, emotionality, don't be a little bitch, don't that's be right. sensitive, yeah. don't be this. And often, not just for men, but the experience of how, in, at least for me, and what I've witnessed, how women judge emotionality in men, mm. especially as a collective, Yeah, you know? So if you're sensitive, or you're overly sensitive, or you feel a lot, or on episode three of The Last of Us, you burst into tears crying like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, know, you were then, sharing then, how. Yeah, then you are not a man. Women won't like you and they won't be attracted to that. And I found that all of that's total bullshit. But uh, the point is that this is just a cultural narrative. So men fear being seen as less than, men fear being weak, 
maybe losing authority or power in the household, being seen differently by their partner or their family? What if people find out, you know, that I went and got support? What does it mean yeah. about me? The couple, the relationship, yeah. that they're feeling. There's that so they're many things yeah. wrapped up in this. And for each person, it's going to be different. What's interesting is the person that fears these things, the person that's resistant to going to therapy, they became the person that they are. They developed those fears from childhood. And one of those things is about being inferior, fear of being less than. And this is sort of part of an individual's not enough story, the mm -hmm. fear that they're not enough in some way. And it's connected to control, smothering, helicopter parenting, being dominated, told they need to believe something. This is the pattern for this individual. Of their, of their caregiver that created this yes. impact. Yes, so that makes a, sense. So as a child, they had that experience. Now as an adult, if they step into a situation that's familiar, has a similar resonance, like going into a coaching or therapy session where there's a expert or authority, there's always a risk that that person could tell them what to do. That person could tell them that they're wrong Interesting. and that they need to see the world a different way and that they have to do this thing for their partner. So that's not always something that a person is aware of, but it's part of the dynamic. Um, and because anytime we're in a position with authority, be it government, a boss, uh, someone in our life that's an expert, it can have a resonance to that, that dynamic when we were kids that someone's in charge. They know better than me. I have to listen to them. I have to follow the rules. The removal of sovereignty. Yeah. <laughs> Which of course from a, for a toddler is important that an adult make choices for them, but at least feels collaborative. They tell them why. I find it because I've been observing so much about parenting as you know, I make my way there is how Kai, when with my nephew, all say like he can't do something because he's like about to wield a weapon, you know? And Kai's like, you got to explain why. And I'm like, yeah, you know, at first I was like, kid's like 11 months old. Like this, he's not going to remember this. Yeah. Kid's got elephant memory. He remembers everything. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> what I noticed is that in the explaining of why, there is actually an understanding he has. And I'm treating him as a conscious being who needs to learn. Remember when you're a kid and you said why and a parent would be, or like a person in authority would be like, just cause, cause I said so. Mm -hmm. Woo! Yeah. I mean, that, that brings me to triggers I've had recently, you know, yeah, in, yeah. in society. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what beautiful context to give to the patterning of what could shape someone's position in that, that offers us more compassion when we're confronting or, or navigating that dynamic. Because if I go into a curious state, which I think when you make the request and the other person says no, or is adamant or withdraws or shuts down, there's a desire to want to like combat that or pursue it or like get them or make it mean something about them instead of entering this very vulnerable state of curiosity. Because to make a request for a need or a desire and to have it rejected and then relive probably the experience of that from childhood too. So for the person who is the requester or the maximizer, what is tends to be a similar, like what's the parent or uh, caregiver dynamic that tends to create that type of behavior or pattern? The, the tendency there is abandonment, neglect, and invisibility. The abandonment wound is something that a lot of people are aware of exists. They might identify with having one. It's talked about a lot. There's famous books written about the abandonment wound. 
And paired with that is a, a dynamic as a kid, part of their needs, part of their ability to get guidance from their parent might have been neglected. Part of being validated or seen by their parent might have not happened, so they feel felt invisible. And part of their achievements in life actually might have been ignored. And this is the kind of person that develops more of a manipulative strategy to, to deal with things in their life. On either side of the spectrum, people have got these fears, they got these hurts, these wounds, and it compels them to show up in a certain way so that their childhood fears don't come true, that, that these parts of themselves aren't threatened. And that's that anxiety that comes up that drives us to respond in a certain way, to deal with things in the way that we do it because of the early dynamic, the early environment. That makes sense. It's so interesting how a lot of it has to do when you think from the pairing of the nervous system response to these adaptive strategies, the person who is the maximizer or the anxiously attached tends to have a challenge self-regulating. And the person who is more distancing or whatever resistant has a challenge co-regulating. Yeah. And so it's like our nervous system rejects what it feels is unfam- is going to lead to a repeated pattern. It's amazing how it's all so overlapped. Hey? Like, yes, yeah. Like it's all, it really it is the nervous system that drives these behaviors because we go into these autonomous responses to try to preserve and protect connection or self and inherently create the same relational patterns that we're trying to fucking stop. You know, it's like, it is God's laughing. It's a psychedelic trip for sure. It really is. And when you wake up to that, like, oh, okay, we're in relationship to one another because we wound each other in ways that are familiar. And that's why I'm drawn to you is to be able to work that through or learn to leave something that a parent never left or learn to engage and stay with something that a parent always left. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's such a trip. Like yeah. to me, it's the great, it, it is the cosmic joke of relationship. Yeah. There's um, a few, you know, key things here that people can understand that will help them get inside of the joke a little bit. Yeah. So now me and my partner, we laugh more about the way that we respond to things. Cause we notice that, oh my gosh, like, you know, I can just be such a child or <laughs> I can't believe here I am making such a big deal out of this. It's just, you know the dishes or it's just this thing, but we're never fighting about what we're really fighting about. It's, we talked about this last time we met that if you fight more than three times about the same thing, it's a hundred percent about childhood and the power struggle. Listen to that, everybody. If you fight about things more three times, hundred percent about childhood, it's never what you think you're fighting about. In my new program for couples, the romantic relationship reset, there is a concept in there and there's a whole module dedicated to understanding these developmental patterns. And there's actually something in there called the developmental mountain, which I review in detail, which is this concept about a yellow brick road from us being born, journeying, taking this big trip into adolescence and becoming a teenager, growing into an adult. And on that journey, we travel this ridge of the mountain and there are experiences we have in our environment, the climate of our family system, the weather of our family system that motivates us to respond in a certain way, to take maybe a different path instead of walking maybe the ridge, which I like to think of as security and self-differentiation and and healthy self-esteem. We take different paths to get around the the dynamics, to survive the weather, so to speak. And that's how we inevitably over time become the kind of person that we are, that we develop the communication style that we have. And when couples get that and they see that, their jaw dropped, it's, there's some pr- profound insights that are a part of that, but they also see the subtle nuances and the little ways of being 
and, and they relate to that and they can feel that and sense that. And that's what starts to unwind part of the dynamic. Once you can start to see that it's even happening in the first place, I also give some direction and some key growth opportunities for people that see themselves on either side of that mountain, uh, which that makes, makes it makes a big difference. And that helps empathize too. Again, just coming back to that loss of empathy, when we can sense what our partner is feeling, when we make sense of their childhood and we understand, wow, there's a similar dynamic now as an adult to when you were a kid and you brought a need to your adult relationship from childhood that I didn't know about. There's something you wanted and needed the most as a child and didn't get. And you brought that need here unconsciously. And that's so and, beautiful when you think about it. Yeah. And when it's we, the gift. Yes. And when we get that and we see that it's not about us and we stop taking it personally and stop getting a defensive, we can actually move forward with just stretching and growing and giving our partner the thing that they needed and wanted the most. Because we all want to do that. You know, if you're really in your heart. He say, yeah, you know, I would love you know, to. Like, only do it if you do it. Right? Yeah, like, that's yeah, the classic. Yeah. You first. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, isn't that the classic? Like yeah. I notice when couples change relational dynamics, there can often, especially if we're not, if both people aren't conscious of the process that's unfolding, right? Like if, if we're in a relationship and we both navigate your course and we both find out what wounds we have and then the, the path to the mountain and all that stuff. And then what are the ways that we can be present to what you needed most, give that to you, give it to me. That's great, right? Because that's like two people consciously being like, we're going to use our relationship to expand self. And then inherently a deep in connection to places beyond the hurt that occurred that created the upper limit. All of us are really avoiding upper limits of intimacy where we think lead to pain, but really is actually the path to depth. Yeah. You know, it's again, more cosmic fuckery, but it's like, if one person is trying to change the dynamic, which I think can occur-ish, like one can change their patterns and that can invite the other person to see new ways of being and then just unconsciously start to do new ways of being. I'd say they need to be a bit in on it because sometimes it can feel like passivity, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? That same form of manipulation. Yeah. But one thing when patterns change communication-wise and the other person isn't aware of this dance or is but is resistant to the uncertainty that lives in the new way of communicating, which I'm sure you see a lot in a Mago dialogue, is that the other person tries to like challenge this new system or new way of being by doubling down on the former communication strategy or like i don't believe you yeah i don't believe that you're really you really mean this empathy that nick told us about you know it's an interesting how resistant again i i just find it like laughing at myself you know laughing at all the things I continue to learn in relationship with kylie that you think you've figured out the new layer and then all of a sudden you get presented with a new layer. But it's not, you know, I remember my friend Sherry Salata saying that, like instead of seeing it as these layers that you're trying to get to this core of this self that's discovered below your traumas and your adaptive strategies, that actually each layer is about expansion, that you're actually growing outwardly, yeah. not internally, which was a, a different way of seeing it. But yeah, do you notice this resistant, this like, it's almost like a new test or a new, what is it? Well, yeah, I mean, there's another part of this developmental mountain story is that there's a kind of person that comes out of childhood with more of a willingness to conform and actually a belief that they should follow the rules. And there's another person that comes out of childhood and says, you know, I should really do things my own way. Yeah, and they burn have, these bitches down. Yeah, yeah, they have more of a tendency to rebel. So, you know, we saw this in COVID with people take, taking different stance with respect to 
certain choices, masks, vaccines, to have people together at the holidays or not. And there was all kinds of pain in family systems about that. People were on different sides of the perspective, so to speak, yeah. on this. Uh, so when people are taught something new and maybe their coach or therapist says, this is the tool, this is the way you guys need to practice this. It's fundamental. One person can say, okay, and they'll be diligent and take notes. And they might even print out all the worksheets, have a little binder there. And the other person might say, yeah, you know, we don't need to follow the script. Uh, let's just have a conversation or, you know, we don't need to do that. And there can just be a little bit of like a tendency to rebel. I value rebellion myself. I'm the kind of person that says, yeah, I just do things my own way. You know, we don't need to follow the rules. And um, that's gotten me into all kinds of situations in my life where I took too much risk, you know, yeah. I took too much chance and I shouldn't have done that. Um, but the point is, is that with that resistance, th there's a number of complicated dynamics. And when, when people come to my office, sometimes the first things that they say, or they write to me via email and they'll say, Nick, we took a look at your Instagram and, you know, we think this Imago dialogue is just really simple. And we want you to know that we're just really like emotionally intelligent. We get it. And, um, we're wondering if you'll be able to help us at all. And if these people eventually come into my office, what happens is something profound is they realize actually there's a lot they were missing and that they didn't get. And that by following a script, it doesn't mean it's insincere. It's actually, if you can follow the structure of that conversation, which has been developed over decades and has worked for millions of people, if you can insert your sincerity and your authenticity inside of that structure, inside of the sending and receiving, that something really incredible actually happens. There's a magical sort of connection by two people taking turns talking and listening. You know, one person talks, one person listens. And not just that we're going to do that at a single time or we're going to exchange roles, but that we're going to do it with sincerity. We're going to do it with a sense of curiosity. I'm going to stay focused and present with you through this conversation, let you know that I'm here for you, let you know that I care, that I'm willing. And I'm going to ask you, is there more about that? And make sure that I've got it and all the things that are part of the structure, which creates that foundation for couples to work through their issues. And this is one of the things that I teach in the program. We actually have a whole week, a whole module dedicated to learning the ins and outs of the dialogue. And from my hundreds of hours of experience facilitating this, I put key tips and pointers and I even brought my partner into the studio to do a dialogue. Oh, and that's good. She was so great because I said, look, I don't want to tell you what I'm going to talk about. I want it to be honest and sincere. And I want it to feel that way for the people learning. Uh, and it just worked so great because there was little trip ups and things we got stuck on that couples are going to have in their own experience when learning this. And I think all the wisdom and insight will translate really well. So I'm excited to hear. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So there's dialogue in it. There's the understanding of the patterns. There's how to move through it. The relationship reset. So is it for just couples who've been together a while or could like new couples, maybe not on the first date, but you know, a couple months in six months in, whatever it might be, this not just a desire to reset as if there's something that, that needs to be redone or restart, but is it also for people who are like, oh, actually, let's build the foundational frameworks. It sounds to me like it is, but. Yeah, there's many people that are gonna take this program that aren't fighting a lot, that aren't in the dead zone of relationship, and they feel like things are pretty good 
but maybe they're getting engaged, they're getting married, they're having a kid, they wanna strengthen the relationship in some way, and the program's perfect for that. Some people are going to be deep inside of the power struggle. They're gonna feel unsatisfied with aspects of the relationship and really looking for support. And essentially, if you're in a relationship, you can benefit from the program. I think part of the truth here is that many people are gonna sign up for this course by themselves, hoping their partner will join them. And one of the things that I decided to do was to take the MP3s from these sessions and make them available for download so that one person can easily airdrop it to their partner, not ambush them with the download, yeah, yeah, yeah. but say, hey, Wait, honey. I just got a new airdrop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And <laughs> Someone in, on a plane. Yeah, 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 exactly. Could be great. If you guys wanna do that, just get on your next flight. But uh, really, I wanna make it accessible to people. And I find that because a lot of the women are coming in wanting to do the work, they have more of a emphasis on processing emotions, that that's a good thing, the work is important, whereas men tend to minimize that feelings are important and emotions matter, and they're more about logic. So I created the first module with a really kind of logical explanation of where people get tripped up. It's all about the power struggle. And my hope is that some partners who are really busy, who or maybe making long commutes to work, traveling a lot for business, that by listening to the audio on the flight or in the car or at the gym, they could also be invited into the conversation and realize that you know, their partner is longing for something specific and to, to develop more of that empathy and to develop more awareness about the patterns that keep people stuck. The program is six weeks and we go through a lot. We go through the phases of relationship, the core understandings of power struggle, this thing called emotional symbiosis that drives the whole thing and, and really drives the challenges that couples have. We go deep into the principles of safety and aliveness. And one of the models that I developed in my clinical training, the wheel of relationship, the developmental mountain, learning dialogue, uh, learning about the key messages that we all craved in childhood and that we're yearning for now, whether we know it or not. And then I teach people to build a relationship vision. And if you don't, if you're in a relationship and you don't have a vision, you can be in a troubling spot because you don't know where the relationship is clearly going, which means you can't show up every day speaking and behaving in a way that's aligned for the vision. And when couples have that, they can become focused on something empowering. They can become focused on what they want instead of what they don't want. And because we, our brains are wired to be paranoid over thousands and thousands of years to ensure our survival, it's so easy to get stuck on the negativity. And in the program, we talk about eliminating that and using the dialogue as a conscious tool. If you wanna be in conscious relationship, you wanna be in adult love, you wanna move out of the patterns of the past and you wanna get unstuck, having an intentional dialogue, learning how to do it is part of that pathway and is actually critical. Yeah, and I think it's important to preface too that a lot of your work began with working with men. So you have a deep understanding of working with men, men's groups, resistance that men have, you know, is so I think that's uh, for a lot of men, that's important to know. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in men's groups for eight years. I am running another program called the Conscious Relationship Council, which starts on April 4th. And that's specifically for men. Uh, we go through a, a longer version of part of this part of this uh, topic, but really it's more of an emphasis on the guys sharing together, getting to know each other, talking about their experiences and relationships. And uh, that's been an incredible experience as well. Uh, and I know you run cohorts of that, right? Yeah, so we do. like closes and then. Yeah, so again. people can visit my Instagram or send me an email. I get them all the information. Perfect. Yeah. Well, we're, okay. So for people listening, 
think you're giving people a discount, right? Yeah. So now that I say that, you better. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Every all the create the love followers, all the the loyal fans here, this podcast, or anyone that happens to come across it, can get fifty dollars off the course, and we'll put the promo code in the show notes in the description, so that they can do that. Perfect. All right. Check it out, everybody. Where can they find the course? Where can they find more of you? We'll make sure we link that out in the show notes. Yeah, too. absolutely. My website, nicksolichek.com. The program's called Romantic Relationship Reset. Everyone that's here gets 50 bucks off. It starts March 27th. Registration opens March 13th. So we're opening this registration up for two weeks. I'm going to go through this program with everybody together. And as a bonus, because it's kind of the birthday here of this course, I'm going to do two live calls with everyone that's going through this at the same time. And that way, if there's questions, people are stuck, they want support, I can be there to uh, help out. Working with the couples if they're on it together. Exactly. Oh, that's great. Okay, awesome. Yeah, live coaching, Q&A. Thanks so much for coming, man, and sharing. Thank you. I love it. It's a beautiful conversation. Thanks, Mark. 